May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I heard about a pastor who was visiting one of his parishioners, a middle-aged woman, during the week. He went to her house, um, went up to the door and rang the doorbell, and there was no response. So he rang the doorbell again. And he could see that there was a light on inside, but again, he got no response. So he went around the house to try the side door, and he noticed that there was a TV on, and still he was getting no response. That's strange, he thought, and decided that he would just leave a note. Revelation 3, verse 20 came to mind, and he wrote a little note to her saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. He was kind of proud of himself for coming up with this very appropriate Bible verse, and he just popped it in her mailbox and walked away. The following Sunday, he saw the woman in church, and she came up to him and just handed him a little note without saying anything. When he looked at the note, he saw that she had also written a verse. She had written a verse we read this morning, Genesis 3, verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, (laughs) and I hid myself. (laughs) I love that joke. I know it's corny. But actually, I think it raises an important question. What are we hiding from? Or maybe even, who are we hiding from? And why? If you've ever seen the show Arrested Development, there's a character on the show who is a never-nude, which means that he is never nude. So even when he takes a shower or goes to the doctor for a checkup or is completely alone, He wears these tight, cut-off jean shorts. He never takes them off. And it's kind of funny and ridiculous. But this morning, I have some news for you. We are all never nudes. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that all of us wear cut-off jean shorts in the shower. But I think each of us, since Adam and Eve, have an ingrained fear of being exposed, of being seen. We're afraid of being naked. And I don't just mean being physically naked, but rather being spiritually and emotionally and mentally vulnerable, exposed. And there are three places where we are afraid to be naked. We're afraid to be naked alone, with each other, and with God. In Genesis 3-7, it says this, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Notice that it says, for themselves, and not for each other. In other words, before Adam and Eve hid from God or hid from each other, they hid from themselves. They saw their own nakedness and tried to cover it up. They looked at their bodies that God had given to them, and they were ashamed of their own God-created bodies. They thought that the way God had formed their bodies was lacking, so they tried to change it with fig leaves. I mean, 
It's not like Adam took one look at his beautiful wife Eve after realizing she was naked and said, hey, you really need to cover up. I don't want to see you naked. And Eve didn't look at Adam and say, you really should cover that up. You know? No. They hid themselves from each other because of a lie that their nakedness was shameful. Even though they had been naked together for some time, their nakedness becomes shameful in the very place and presence where it should never be shameful. Nakedness should never feel shameful when we are alone or when we are with our spouse. And sadly, for many of us today, these are the places where it still feels shameful. You know, how many of us look at our bodies in the bathroom mirror and feel shame? I know I do. I did this morning. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve were in a very different context than we are today. The only naked people they were going to encounter in their private garden were each other. So it was totally acceptable for them to be physically naked all the time. I would definitely not recommend that all of us start going nude all the time. And I'm thankful that you got dressed this morning. This is not how we are going to reverse the curse or undo the fall. Far from it. But actually, in our own day, that's what we see happening all the time. People are getting physically naked with each other without being emotionally and spiritually naked with each other. They're being physically exposed without being relationally exposed. And that is so dangerous because we start to shut down the most important parts of ourselves. And we sort of inoculate ourselves against real vulnerability, real relationship, until we can't feel anything at all anymore. And this is true for both single people and married people. We are all capable of doing this. It can happen in the context of a one-night stand, or after 30 years of marriage. And I think it shows a massive lie in our culture. Our culture equates bodily exposure with self-exposure. This isn't the time or place to wade fully into the Bruce to Caitlyn Jenner media apocalypse. And let me just say, I need to say this up front, that I don't presume to condemn or judge Jenner in any way. That is not my job. There is one judge, and I'm very thankful that it isn't me. And I stand before you as a very sinful and broken man who has many, many struggles. But you know, I do think it's interesting that all of the focus and hype has been fixated on Jenner's bodily exposure. I don't think anyone knows Jenner any better than they did before, but everyone feels like they do because they saw a picture of Jenner's surgically altered body. It shows that our culture thinks that if you expose your body or your altered body, you are exposing your real self. And that just isn't true. That's a lie. We are far more than our bodies. We are our bodies, but we're more than that. You know, when when Jenner's body 
wastes away to nothing, surgical alterations and all. Who is going to be talking about it then? Because that's what's going to happen. As Paul says in our reading from 2 Corinthians, our outer nature is wasting away. And instead, we are exhorted to look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. As Christians, we need to very carefully consider what our culture is inviting us to celebrate. What are we celebrating? American individualistic self-determinism. You can be and do anything you choose. Self-actualization. By the way, isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve were doing? Self-actualizing? What are we celebrating? Are we celebrating a super wealthy person who has the financial means to surgically alter their body out of their shame for the body that God gave them? Is that what we're celebrating? You know, if we learn nothing else from the Adam and Eve story about human sin, we should at least learn that it usually doesn't work out well when we take matters into our own hands. As Christians, we acknowledge that we shouldn't feel totally comfortable in our bodies. We are all waiting for our bodies to be remade, made new. Our bodies are not as they should be. But it is for God to remake us as he sees fit, not as we see fit. We are God's creation, not the work of our own hands. Satan's clincher in his temptation of Eve and Adam was this. Be like God. Reach out and take Godhood for yourselves. The limitations God has placed on you, they're just holding you back. You need to ditch those. But Jesus tells us something different. In Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil by being fully God and not seeing equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Yet we still again and again commit the first sin of grasping to be like God in ways that we as creatures should not. We look to ourselves for the solution instead of to God. And you know, when we try to remake ourselves as we see fit, it's usually just another way of hiding our true selves from each other, like Adam and Eve did with the fig leaves. When what we really need is an increase of real vulnerability, real self-exposure to one another and to God. Because we also hide from God. And this is something that we do alone, privately, and together. You'll notice in Genesis 3, it says that after they hid from each other, Adam and Eve together hid from God. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I used to read this as saying that they hid separately from each other in the trees of the garden. But now I think something else is going on. Just as a common enemy can bring people together, so Adam and Eve hide together from God. Instead of coming together in freedom, as was God's intention for them, they huddle together 
in their fear and their shame. They trust their enemy and they flee from their friend. And this is what we do all the time. One of my spiritual mentors tells me that he'll talk with people who are part of his Christian community and they'll tell him, oh yeah, me and -and so-and-so were hanging out the other day and we had a really great time together. And so my friend will ask the person, so how is so-and-so doing in their relationship with God? And the person will have no idea. They'll say something like, oh, that never came up. And then my mentor will see the so-and-so later on, and they'll be telling him all the struggles they're having in their faith and how they feel like they really need the support from their Christian brothers and sisters. And my friend gets so frustrated because this is what Christian relationships are supposed to be for. We're supposed to be known by each other and known by God together. And this is certainly something that I'm guilty of. I'll hang out with other believers and have a great time and forget to even mention God. I'll forget to expose us and our relationship to God. And I'm a priest. You would think God might come up somewhere along the way. But we're so busy hiding from each other and together hiding from God that we push God away. And this has effects. God tells us what those effects will be later in Genesis 3. Things are falling apart. Our outer nature is wasting away. Thorns in the ground, pain in childbirth, death. Science has a fancy word for this. It calls it entropy. Everything is slowly falling apart. And I think over the last few years, I've had a sort of reality check. As I've entered my 30s, I've seen more and more friends and family face horrible tragedy in their lives. And I've experienced greater suffering and loss myself. And so I've started to disbelieve the American myth of progress, that things are gradually getting better and better over time. And certainly, as I look at the world around us and all the terrible things that regularly occur for most of humanity, it becomes harder and harder to believe that things are actually any better than they were 2,000 years ago. And I think I sort of believed that we really could learn from our mistakes and do better than those in the past. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. (laughs) But, you know, we aren't doing better than those in the past. If anything, we're doing worse. And the church, historically, hasn't always responded to this in the best way. As I look at church history, there are sort of four responses that I see the church making to a world that's falling apart. The first is to run away, to seal itself off from the world and remain totally separate and unengaged. The second is to overtly engage, to become sort of culture warriors that are going to take back the culture for Christ. In our own day, this has been shown to be completely ineffective, and I would argue detrimental to the gospel. The third has been cultural capitulation, where the church just conforms to the culture and becomes a sort of echo chamber for whatever the culture is saying on a given day. 
And we have certainly seen plenty of that in our own day. But then there has always been a fourth option, that a few faithful Christians and communities of Christians have lived out for the past two millennia. I like to call this fourth option, tending the garden. I recently reread the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and what really struck me this time were how many characters were placed in seemingly hopeless circumstances, much like many of us might feel today as we look at our world. And I think the message I used to take from the books when I read them in middle school, which was the last time I'd read them, was, look at these impossible odds. But by perseverance, normal people can rise to any challenge and gain victory over evil. But this time I realized that isn't what Tolkien is really saying at all. In short, Tolkien affirms entropy. Things are getting worse and degrading over time. But that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and give up. On the contrary, our hope prompts us to action. He writes this great line for Gandalf, who says, Yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. And it is this fourth option, tending the garden, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, that I think God is talking about in Genesis 3, verse 15. God has this sort of cryptic statement in his curse to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The early martyrs of the church looked to this verse to describe what they were doing as they faced martyrdom. They would refer to their martyrdoms as crushing the head of the serpent. Every act of faithfulness towards death became for them a blow to the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus himself models this for us. You know, Jesus didn't zoom around all over the planet dealing with every area of brokenness or disease or demon. He dealt with the needs that were presented to him. When he encountered a demon, he cast it out. He uprooted the evil that he encountered in his field so that he could plant a new family, a new community that would carry on the labor of tending the family garden and making more clean soil for future generations to till. And I need to note here, I'm just talking about his earthly ministry, not the universal power of his death and resurrection to defeat sin, death, and the devil, which we also need to talk about. We all, as fallen humans, face what Tolkien calls a long defeat. But there's one final truth that stands behind the long defeat. Tolkien writes, I am a Christian, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. In other words, 
in the background of the story of things falling apart, there is a bigger story of a coming final victory, a redemption of all things. Alan Jacobs summarizes this perspective when he writes, We fight the long defeat because results are not as important as our Father's delight. We fight the long defeat because we are not the authorities over success. We fight the long defeat because the final victory is coming. While we await the final victory, our task is to uproot the evil in our own hearts and minds and lives, to uproot the evil that disrupts our relationships with others and inhibits our relationship with God. And we do this by coming out of hiding, by being real and vulnerable with others and with God. Every time we embrace God's truth, we are sending a crushing blow to the father of lies. So let me ask you again the question I started with. What or whom are you hiding from? What would it look like for you to come out of hiding and take up the task of uprooting sin and evil in your everyday life? May we have the courage to uproot the evil in the fields that we know as we await God's final victory. Amen.